Good morning. Good morning and welcome to the next to the last convocation of spring semester. Next Monday will be senior statements. You want to be sure and come back for that. Today's event is different than what was on your green printed schedule. Instead, we're going to hear best student speeches from the oral common academic voice classes, and we're in for a real treat here. My name is Becky Horst. I coordinate convocations, and you all are the, the audience and the uh, presenters at this uh, for today's. Pat Lehman is going to introduce the first two speakers from her class. Good morning. I'm honored to introduce both Jake Smucker and Mia Angle. Jake is a second year music major and English writing minor. He's an aspiring composer who's involved in a variety of musical activities. And he told me something really important that you should know about him. I really like bread. <laughs> His speech is entitled, A Call for More Coed Housing. Mia Engel is a second year ASL major with an English writing minor. She says, I love sitting in the same seat in oral comm every class. And I like talking to people as long as they keep appropriate distances. And so it's appropriate that her topic is proxemics. Welcome. Raise your hand if you have ever been involved with romantically, or are currently involved with romantically, a member of the opposite sex. Okay, now raise your hand if you have a member of the opposite sex whom you consider to be platonic friends, no romantic attachments at all. Good, remember who you are, I will come back to you. I've always related better to women emotionally than I have with men, and this was instrumental in my decision to apply for co-ed housing next year. And during the housing application process, I discovered just how co-ed it really is, which is to say that even though I'm living in a house with five other men and six other women, I'm still required to have a same-sex roommate, as is pretty much everybody else ever. And I propose that this is unfair to people who feel more comfortable living with members of the opposite gender. Specifically, I'm going to be talking about members of the LGBTQ community, although this could easily apply to any heterosexual as well. Some reasons for discomfort could be if your roommate is making homophobic comments, or if, like me, you simply identify better with members of the opposite gender than your own gender. As one student from Tufts University pointed out, students in the past have found themselves having a major crush on their straight roommate, and that's a really uncomfortable situation. That's never happened to me personally, but that's yet another reason why a GALBTQ student might feel some discomfort. Now, there's a common misconception that two members of the opposite sex can't live together without some funny business happening, without sex happening, basically. And, I would just like to point out that this is blatantly untrue, as evidenced by the great multitude of you who raised your hands at the beginning of my speech. When asked if he would allow for co-ed rooming options, Tufts University President John D. Biagio says, quote, while we realize many of our students are sexually active, we don't see it as our role to encourage it. 
implying that he buys into this idea that men and women can't live together without sex happening. Now, this argument especially holds no water when you consider members of the GLBTQ community who every day live with their own gender. If you're so concerned about men and women sharing a room and having sex, surely you should be equally concerned with a gay man living with another man or maybe two lesbians living together. As one Georgetown University student puts it, the fact of the matter is that people feel uncomfortable with the idea of co-ed roommates because they ignore two central points. Putting a man and a woman together does not mean that they will engage in a sexual relationship, and putting men with men and women with women doesn't mean they won't. <laughs> this brings me to my third point, which is that even if the roommates do decide to have sex, short of sending a stalker to follow these people and forcibly separating them, there's not really a whole lot the college can do about it. And, Frankly, as long as both parties involved are consenting adults, it's really not any of their business. <laughs> College is supposed to be the period of our lives where we begin to feel independent and where we use the knowledge that we've gained through our education to begin to make our own responsible decisions. And we can't do that if we're not trusted to live with members of the opposite gender without sex happening. <laughs> so. Um, I would like to point out that in the adult world, we will have to interact with members of the opposite gender all the time. And some of us might even have to live with members of the opposite gender, just platonically, outside of a marriage. So this idea that we need to separate men and women isn't actually doing anything except preventing people from experiencing what the real world is actually like. I would also like to point out that our current system of segregating floors by gender um, doesn't really stop sex from happening. If two people want to have sex, they will find a way to do it, despite what policies you may have in place. So, some may wonder what exactly I'm proposing to do. All I'm suggesting is that we give people the option. I'm not saying we should take a random man and a random woman and say, boom, your roommates go off and live together. What I am suggesting is that if there are two people who want to live together and just happen to be members of the opposite gender, then we should allow that to happen. Now, there are obviously going to be some objections to what I'm proposing. Crystal Branton, who is employed at Howard University, says, even if it is strictly platonic, living with someone of the opposite sex can have so many issues that should be looked at. Plus, anybody can claim to be platonic friends and be just the opposite. Hormones are too rampant and there are just too many chances that do not need to be taken. And in these chances, she's including instances of rape and sexual assault. Now, I've already talked about platonic friends, so I'm going to move on. However, before I get into the issue of rape, I would like to say that as somebody who has never been raped or sexually assaulted, I can never know what that is like, and I am by no means trying to diminish or marginalize the experiences of anybody who has experienced rape or sexual assault. But from what I understand, it is not so much about sexual attraction as it is about power and dominance. And while it's true that the majority of rapists are men, we should be as concerned about men living with women as we are about men living with other men, and we simply aren't. I would also like to say that there's no reason to think that a man and a woman living in the same room as opposed to being separated by a floor would increase the number of rapes or sexual assaults. And if that's not true on your campus and a man and a woman living together would increase the instances of rape, then you have a rape problem on your campus and that needs to be addressed. But that is a whole other speech that I don't have time for. 
I would also like to say that I don't think we should let fear of what might happen rule our lives. For example, in India, a Muslim group known as the G J.I.H. wanted to ban co-ed schools after the rape of a girl occurred in one. And the community rose up and said, no, this is terrible that you were raped, but we don't want to ban co-ed schools because co-ed schools are beneficial. And if we ban them, we will fall behind the rest of the world academically. Another objection might be that GLBTQ people and heterosexuals need to learn to coexist. And what better way to coexist than by forcing them to live together? My response to this would be, yes, they do need to learn to coexist, but so do men and women. And ultimately, in a rooming situation, what it comes down to is how compatible you are with the person you're living with. Some people are just going to be more comfortable rooming with somebody of the opposite gender than their own gender, and that should be okay. This isn't to say that every GLBTQ person is going to want to live with somebody of the opposite gender. This is just saying that we should have the option. For example, I'm currently living with Landon Slaybaugh, and he's pretty cool, and I see no reason to change that at this moment. Another objection might be, well, what about bathrooms? Men and women sharing bathrooms is icky. Well, <laughs> if we were to have co-ed rooming policies here at Goshen, I would propose that we do that in Yoder, where, as most of you know, there are two bathrooms for every floor. One could be for men, and one could be for women. According to the Hilltop, as of 2010, only around 50 college campuses have co-ed rooming options. What exactly do I think will happen if these policies would come into play at Goshen? I envision more people being comfortable in their rooming situations and more compatible with the people they're living with. I think college would be a smoother transition for a lot of people. However, if we continue to live in the past with these outdated assumptions and gender role stereotypes, um, we continue to isolate a number of the population and we could continue to make people very unhappy in their current living situation when that could easily be avoided. Before I conclude, I'd like to ask one final question. Of those of you who raised your hands and said you had a friend of the opposite sex whom you considered to be just friends, how many of you would feel comfortable living with that person if it came down to it? Good for you. <laughs> In conclusion, I encourage each of you to think outside of our society's heteronormative box and consider the needs of the students who are often looked over. Thank you. I have some more questions for you. How many of you are sitting in the same seat that you sat in the last time that you were here? Okay. How many of you are sitting nearly in the same seat that you've sat in most times that you've come? Okay. This is an example of personal space preferences. Um, proxemics is the study of how humans perceive and use space and how we react to changes that occur in that space. By sitting in the same seat, you are staking out your personal space and your territory. So today during my speech, I'm going to explain what proxemics is, I'm going to give examples of how proxemics can be seen in our lives, and I'm going to compare proxemics in the US to those around the world so that you can better understand how proxemics affect your life. So first, I'm going to explain what proxemics is. The, the term was first coined in the 1950s by Edward T. Hall, who's an anthropologist. Um, there are two types of proxemics. There's physical territory, which is like 
while you're sitting in the same seat. And then there's personal territory, which is the space between you and another person. This can best be examined like um, a target with your body being the bullseye. The first zone out is your intimate distance. And that can be seen like from your body out 18 inches. And so this is a zone where maybe um, significant others would be, but also close family or friends. Um, the next zone out is your personal distance. And that's um, from 18 inches to four feet. And that's where well-known friends and most of your interactions take place. Social distance is from four feet to 12 feet. And that's where working interactions would probably take place. Finally, public distance is 10 feet out and further. And that's where like a large public speaker might stand whenever they're presenting. So how do we experience these in our everyday lives? Well, intimate distance obviously is for significant others, but also maybe there's a group of friends piled together watching a movie on a couch. And that could be in your intimate distance. Personal distance is where most of your college interactions probably take place. So if you're sitting in Java Junction and sharing a coffee, um, the person sitting across from the, the table from you is probably using personal space. Social space is a little bit further. And that might be where you'd stand if you were talking to your boss at work or if you were having a conversation with Jimmy B. Um, public distance is like when you're sitting in a classroom and someone's presenting at the front of the room, or if someone's giving a speech in the front of Convo. But these interactions don't just occur at college. They're everywhere in your everyday life. Proxemics used in the US, though, are not a worldwide standard. Some cultures prefer to stand further apart whenever they're interacting. These might be like British people, the Dutch, French, or Germans. Other countries and cultures prefer to stand closer together whenever they're interacting. And that might be people who are from the Mediterranean, Latin America, or Saudi Arabia. The US tends to have a wider personal space and a bigger sense of when we've been crossed. And this may be due to our independent nature. According to New York Times writer Stephanie Rosenblum, American individualism leads to people feeling like they have a right to the space that they're in. So throughout my speech, I've explained that proxemics is a study of how space is related to humans. And I've mentioned ways that you experience this in your own life. And we've discussed the differences between people in the US and those abroad. So now I'm going to give an example of how you can test this out. People who prefer to stand further apart, cultures that do, like maybe the British, prefer to only be able to touch their fingertips to the person's forehead whenever they're having an interaction. This would be comfortable if we were British. <laughs> <laughs> People and cultures that prefer to stand closer together, like people from Latin America, prefer to be able to touch the palm of their hand to the back of the other person's head. Like that. <laughs> in the United States, we prefer to be a little bit in between there. So we prefer to be able to extend our arms with our thumbs out and put them into the other person's ears.
That seems like a comfortable distance. Now, if you're ever having an awkward social interaction, you can test it out. I can't promise that it will relieve the awkward tension, but <laughs> at least your curiosity will be satisfied. Thanks. Hi, my name is Dwayne Stolzfus. I teach in the communication department here, and I've had the good fortune both in the fall semester and the spring semester to teach sections of a new course for all first-year students called Academic Voice. This semester, we started off with students telling true stories, and they first wrote out their story, and then they shared the story in a speech. Just in the last couple of weeks, I asked students in class which stories they remember from the beginning of the semester and which stories they would like to have shared here this morning. And the class nominated the two speakers you're about to hear. The first one, Hannah Souter, is going to share a story about uh, a trip taken to Philadelphia. The title of her speech is Purpose. And after Hannah tells her story, we're going to hear from Yun Kosa, who is from Norway. I've had some difficulty at a time or two in pronouncing his name because it's not pronounced the way it's spelled. And Yun, I'm going to ask you to set the record straight if I didn't catch it quite right. Yun is going to talk about one of his passions, which is playing tennis. And the title of his story is First When. We'll start off with Hannah. I couldn't watch anymore. I felt sick. The windows of the 1970s Mercury Cougar darkened as the crowds enveloped the car I was in. Clothes were being flung from the bed of the Ford F-150 in front of the car I was in. It was Christmas Day in the city of Philadelphia, and the student-organized clothing distribution was turning into a mad rush. Free clothes and naive college students to distribute the name brand material. What more could the homeless people in Philadelphia want? I knew what I wanted. I wanted to escape, but I couldn't open the door. The car I was in was double parked in the center of the street surrounding Love Park. Rachel, who was sitting next to me, cranked down the window and stuck out her head to get a better view. I pulled my gray, second-hand sweatshirt over my nose and mouth so that only my eyes peeked out. Rachel opened the door and stepped out, one foot at a time, like the celebrities do on the red carpet. She approached a man wearing a torn Nike jacket. She greeted him, saying, Oh, Merry Christmas, sir. We're just here to bless you in the name of Jesus. She was beaming so hard, I thought her face was going to peel off. I sunk further down in my, in my seat. I stared out at the college students standing on the bed of the Ford. Their straight teeth and spotless clothes displayed their lifestyle. Rachel greeted the starry-eyed college students on the bed of the truck. They were now flinging pink jumpsuits to the crowd below. An old, unshaven Asian man caught a pair of the pink pants. He held them up to his thin legs. I could see the shame in his face. When our eyes met, 
I felt a tear slip out of the corner of my eye. I didn't want to be a part of this chaos, which the college students had described as an organized event to bless the homeless. I didn't see anything organized about it. These homeless people shouldn't have to feel degraded by this blessing. The unorganized distribution of clothes created this swarm. Cars honked behind us. People had now filled the street. I hated the separation between the givers and the receivers. The students on the bed of that shiny Ford could have cared less about getting to know the homeless in Philadelphia. But why should they? They're doing their good deed, right? My lungs filled with smoke as Rachel's father puffed away on his Marlboro. He rested his arm on the steering wheel and stared out at the scene playing out in front of us. It took all the strength inside of me not to yell at these naive college students. I wanted to tell the students to just stop. This is foolish. What makes you think that you have the privilege to throw your second-hand clothes out of the bed of this truck like scraps to the pigs? I knew that there had to be an organization in the city that could effectively help these homeless people, an organization that knew these people. The commotion grew as the clothing piles decreased. Rachel was talking to a tall black man about the gospel. The man was quoting John 3.16 to her. His moving lips framed his cracked, decaying teeth. I was now unsure of who was ministering to whom. I stared past the heads of the people. I looked at the city of Philadelphia around me. I noticed a building about a block away. The broken windows and chipping paint of this building seemed to mirror the brokenness within each human create a, caught up in this swarm. There was a deeper need. The people longed for something more. They seemed to be searching for hope again, like that old broken building down the street. They wanted something real. They want a purpose. Good morning, Alzaman, or in English, good morning, everyone. My name is Jun Kosa. I'm an international student from Norway, and I'm also part of Goshen College Tennis team. Tennis team? Give me some. Yeah. <laughs> and tennis has always been an important part of my life. I started to play tennis when I was six years old, but I didn't play my first tournament until I was 12 years old. I still remember the tournament because me and my dad left early to have time to warm up and get ready. So we got there, and the way I Imagine tennis was that I wanted to play like professional tennis players. I wanted to play technical. I wanted to play fancy. I wanted to play, and or, most important, my tennis had to look good. So I got out there and I started to play. I did some good points in the beginning, and the audience was giving me a lot of applause. I was feeling good. But I couldn't keep up playing this way. It was too demanding. And I started to lose points. I lost games. And I lost sets. Inside me, the emotion just started to build up. And at one point, I couldn't keep it anymore. 
I throw my racket. I try to look at my dad among the audience, but I could only see his back of his head because he was about to leave. Not too proud. After that, it went quick. I lost the match, and when I hit the last ball, I could feel the tears pushing on my eyelids. I didn't want to cry in front of my audience, and I didn't want to cry in front of my opponent, so I was just looking down, taking his hand, walking off the court, looking down all the time, avoiding all kind of eye contact. And when I went into the car, which my dad was already waiting, I just started to scream. Hvordan kunne jeg tape den kampen her? Jeg hater tennis. Hvordan? How could I lose this match? I hate tennis. I will never play tennis again. Ironically, on the first occasion to play tennis again, I was out there hitting balls. And I kept on playing tournaments, but I didn't change the way I was playing, so I kept on losing. And I kept on feeling the same. No more tennis. I hate it. Never again. And I remember one time, coming home, I was overhearing my dad talking to my mom. We have to let him quit tennis. It's not good for him. It's breaking him down. My mom saying, take it easy. Life is up and down. Let him deal with it. So when I was 14 years old, I was signed up for a bigger regional tournament. And my coach came to me one week before the tournament started. And he said, Lele, you've been working really hard and I've seen a lot of potential and improvement. I think you can do good in this tournament, but you have to make a decision. You want to go out there and play to win, or you want to go out there and play for the good points, because it's a difference. And I said, I'm tired of losing. What do I have to do to win? And he said, rule number one, no fancy shots. Rule number two, don't play like professional, because you're not. And then rule number three, run around and get every ball back in play. I don't care how much you need to run or what you need to do, just get every ball back in play and play a consistent game. And I said, okay, I'll try it. So we got to the tournament and I started to play like he had told me. And it was working. I was the one winning the points. And instead of, my, instead of being me that was throwing rackets and yelling, it was my opponents. And Sally, I have to say, I was feeling good. So I won the match, and I went on playing more matches, and I won them too, playing the same way. And my coach, I, and I was in the final, and my coach said he couldn't come the next day to watch me, but if I kept on playing the same way, I think you can go all the way. I, I was excited to play the final the next day because my mom was with me, with me. Most commonly, it was always my dad who came to watch me. So I was ready to play. I went onto the court and I started to play my game, or what I thought was my game, or at least what my coach had told me to be my game. So I just kept the ball in back in play, but my opponent played the way I wanted to play. He was hitting harder, he was hitting more spin, he was hitting defensive shots. I wanted to do that. But I kept on, I stuck to my game plan. And in the first set, we were equal. He went to a tiebreaker, which I was able to win. And in the second set, he couldn't keep up with my consistent game. I was up and I had three match points in a row. And I even started to think, how am I going to celebrate my first tournament victory? <laughs> a little bit too early. So I lost two points in a row and my opponent was screaming, come on. And I was starting to get so nervous. 
What am I going to do? Please, just forget about this, how to celebrate, just win this point. Please, for me. <laughs> and I won the point, and without planning it, I was turning to my mom, giving her one fist bump, saying, yes! <laughs> my mom was standing there with both hands, giving me fist bump, saying, that good pin, that good pin, that's my boy. I was feeling good. I shook my opponent's hand and said, good match, went out, I got my trophy, I was feeling like the king of the world. I, I was about to leave when the head coach uh, at the tournament came to me and she said, it was a good match, but you were playing so boring. I was, like, <laughs> I was, I was looking down at the trophy and I answered, I don't play for the audience, I play to win. Thank you. I'm Jessica Baldanzi. I also, like Dwayne, have had the privilege to teach academic voice for two semesters in a row. And I just want to clarify, this is one of the best speeches from our fabulous academic voice class this semester. But I will say that Cape Sowen is um, definitely one of the most genial members of the class who is willing to come do the speech and help out on very late notice. Um, Ask Cape sometime about American Roots music. He knows an awful lot about it and has already taught me quite a lot about it. And he has a mildly disturbing speech to share with you that might make you think a little bit differently about food service. Please welcome Cape. All through my childhood, my grandpa would pray before meals, saying, Lord, we ask thee to bless and sanctify this food. I never understood why. Sandwiches don't have souls, do they? Why do you need to sanctify them? And then I worked in a commercial kitchen. And after spending the better part of five years working food service, there's not one meal that I eat out before praying long and hard over that food. <laughs> Uh, food service and I have been together for a long time. Ever since my first job as a fry cook at Burger King, uh, food service has been my work of choice. But it's more than work. Food service is like my girlfriend. Except not the cute girlfriend that cuddles and leaves your jacket smelling like lilacs and puppies. We're talking the emotionally abusive girlfriend that the schmuck keeps going back to just because they've been together for so long. We have an understanding, food service and I. She gives me a paycheck, and I don't spit in people's chili. It's as simple as that. <laughs> One of my more exciting stories was from working as a, more or less working as a grease monkey at a small family-owned diner back in Michigan. One Friday, we were in the middle of a rush. Everyone in the county decided they wanted their grilled cheese sandwiches now. And there were, uh, you know, guests coming in, going out. Waitresses were running in and out of the kitchen. Order tickets were flying everywhere. Us cooks were in a mad rush. The boss was running around like a chicken with her head cut off. It was bad. And in the middle of this rush, some joker comes in and decides that he wants to order a Cuban sandwich. This is no easy piece of grilled cheese. Let me tell you about the sandwich. First, you need to get the hoagie bun, which we get off of this shelf over here have to hand cut it, and it has pulled pork, which you need to get from the reach-in cooler over here, and then heat it up on the flat top grill with that fine line between heating it up and drying it out. And then you need to get the diced pickles from this reach-in cooler over here, which we need to hand cut. 
Start to finish, the prep time for the sandwich is about eight minutes, which in food service time is hours. So Phil, the second in command cook, says that he'll take it. I didn't argue. For all I cared, he could take every Cuban sandwich that came into that kitchen from then until kingdom come. So he prepped the sandwich, finished it, slid it up onto the spatula just as he was reaching to put it onto the plate. The sandwich slipped and fell, plopped nice and easy onto the greasy tile floor of that kitchen. We both stared at it, aghast. Phil let out a particularly creative stream of profanities, grabbed the sandwich off the floor, slapped it back onto the flat top grill, toasted it for no more than 10 seconds on either side, took that son of a gun, set it on a plate, sent it out. <laughs> you saw nothing. His eyes were a threat. <laughs> saw what? And we moved on like it never happened. And that's how a lot of these food service stories go. You just ignore it, pretend that nothing happened, and hope that nobody gets food poisoning. <laughs> About an hour later, we're cleaning up the kitchen after the rush, and the head waitress walks in. Hey, Phil, that, uh, that Cuban that you sent out about an hour ago, we both froze. Just wanted to let you know that the, uh, the lady who, uh, who had that sandwich, she said it was the best Cuban that she'd ever had. <laughs> that woman must have sanctified her food.